right, let's go ahead and jump into Matthew 18. We're going to look at verses 5 through 9 this morning. If you were here last week, we started into this series on living in community and understanding the importance of relationships and the fact that when you become a believer or a Christian or you choose to follow Jesus, you become a part of this thing called the church, and that's the people of God. And then we have to figure out how do we live together in this thing called community, in healthy, established, strong relationships. And so Jesus takes time to focus in this chapter on what that looks like for our lives. Last week we talked about kind of the foundation for that is this thing called humility. For us to live in right relationships with other people, we have to be humble. We have to be willing to put others first. And that's hard for us, but that's the first step that Jesus gives us. The second thing that we jump into in these verses is this thing called influence. And when you are thrown together in this thing called community, and you and I are living together, and we're building relationships with each other, one of the things that you have, whether you want to or not, is you have influence. You have influence in the lives of other people, either positive or negative. Because whether you know it or not, whether you choose to say, hey, I have influence, people will watch your life, and they will take the lead from you in certain areas, and they may actually use your life as a lens of how to follow Jesus, or a lens of how to, how to do something in life. So they're looking at you, whether you know it or not, and you're influencing them. Now, if, if you're a parent, you know how this works with your kids, because you influence your kids both positive and, how many parents know, negatively. And I know the first time I really saw the power of influence in my life, it was with Courtney and Jordan. When they came into the world, I realized that I can no longer just kind of live for myself, not realizing that everything that I do every day influences what they see about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a husband, all those things. And when that really hit home for me was when, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but Courtney was young and and pretty young, can't remember exactly her age. But uh, I, I have uh, never enjoyed, like, quick vertical drops. I love roller coasters. You take me to Magic Mountain, I'll go on every ride except for a drop of doom. I just don't like 450 feet of direct drop towards the ground. I just don't like that. Well, there's another ride called Supreme Scream at Knott's Berry Farm. Anyone ever heard of that? Same thing. It's about 250 feet, just a straight vertical drop. And to make that one a little bit more scary, they don't just drop you. They accelerate you towards the ground, which I don't want even a piece of that. So... But we were there one day with, with family and with the cousins and everybody, and we were having a good time. And so Kim is fearless. There's no ride on the face of the earth that she doesn't get excited about, where I was like, ah, I don't want to do that. She wants to run and do it. So she was going on with some of the older cousins, and Courtney was contemplating on whether or not she would go on the ride. And I had already made my decision. I am not going on that ride. So I'm standing there, and, and they're getting into the line, and Courtney's standing right next to me, and I looked down, and I said, honey, I said, are you, you going to go on the ride? She goes, yeah, yeah, it looks really fun. You know, people seem to be yelling and screaming and having a good time. And, and I looked up at the ride, and I looked down at her, and I said, honey, I said, that, that's really high. I said, that's like, I mean, when you get up there, it's going to be higher than you think it is. I mean, it's like way, there's nothing taller in this whole amusement park. That's like really high. And I mean, they're dropping, it's really fast. And I, I know I'm not going on it because it scares me to death. And so I'm having this conversation with my daughter. And then I turn, and I say, what do you think? She goes, yeah, Dad, you know, that is pretty high up there. She said, they, they are dropping pretty fast. I don't know. I, I, maybe it's higher than I think it is. I don't know if I should go on that ride. Dad, you're right. If it scares you, it's probably going to scare me. I, I don't think I'm going to go on the ride. And I remember after I walked away from that, I thought, that was the wrong kind of influence on my daughter. It's because one of the things in our family that we have family values, and one of them is risk, face your fear. I had taken my fear, and not only had I not risked to face it, I had put it on her. 
Now, Kim and I had a little conversation after that, and now my daughter has overcome her dad's fears and her fears, and she's like her mom. She's fearless. But I think you and I, not just as parents, but in life, you, have to, you and I have to understand the decisions we make, the way that we live life, the way that we follow Jesus has the potential to either positively or negatively influence people. And when we, when we're, what we're really talking about here, what we're focusing on today, is this thing called discipleship. Because discipleship is influence. It is influencing somebody towards Jesus. That's what discipleship is. If you are discipling somebody, you are influencing them in a certain direction. You are helping them, which means you and I have to understand, it's not that we're all perfect and somehow I'm helping the less perfect person. It's that I'm one step further towards Jesus than maybe they are. So I help them take one more step towards him in following him. That's discipleship. That's influence. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. So starting in verse 5, I'll go to verse 9. Jesus continues and he says, And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now remember, going back to last week, Jesus is using the analogy of a child in talking about humility last week. And then this week, remember, most likely you understand he probably has a child in front of him or on his lap, probably a toddler that he's using as an illustration to say this is, the, this is kind of the way you need to see faith and the way you need to see the world is through the eyes of a child. And then going on in verse 6, he says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, and when he uses the word those little ones, now he's actually broadening it. He's not just saying kids. He's saying when he uses the term little ones, he's talking about those who maybe be, may, might be mature, less mature than you are, those that are the weaker person, those that may be struggling. That's who he's referring to. And so he goes on, and then as we go on in the next part, he says, If you cause them to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of these things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the, in eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So Jesus is always very direct and very straight to the point. And he's talking about the way that we influence people around us. And so what I want to do is walk through the passage this morning and talk about how we influence people towards Jesus. This is a discipleship thing. Uh, many of you were here on Tuesday night for Align, and we talked about the core of who we are as a church, because we are the body of Christ, is this thing called discipleship, which is helping people move towards Jesus. It's the command Jesus gave us in Matthew 28 to make disciples, and discipleship is influence. And so this is really, again, about discipleship. So how am I leading people towards Jesus? Or maybe the other side of the question is, am I leading people away from him, even unknowingly in my life? So let's walk through the passage together. Look at the first part of verse 5. Influencing towards Jesus means that you and I have to be willing to embrace the weaker person. So Jesus says, And whoever welcomes uh, one such child, and, and he uses the word welcome, it isn't just kind of, hey, handshake, pat on the back, thanks for coming, kind of welcome. The word welcome there has, it's a very important term because it means how you would welcome somebody with great honor, somebody of great prestige, somebody that you really value. He says you are to welcome this little child or the lesser person, the weaker person. Not the person that you think, well, I guess I have to put up with them because they irritate me. We all have those kind of people in our life, don't we? You don't have to raise your hands if they're sitting next to you, okay? 
But it's true. It's true. We have, that's kind of the way that we feel sometimes. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you're going to be someone who influences people towards me, that means you have to embrace people that are difficult to embrace. People that sometimes rub you the wrong way. People that maybe they have a lot of issues and maybe you've lost patience with them and and you really would prefer to be around other people who are more mature or have less issues in their life. What Jesus is saying is if we're going to be people who truly influence, we have to be willing to embrace someone who's not quite where we are yet, who hasn't grown in their faith, who hasn't matured yet, which means that means you and I have to be willing to deal with people that are difficult to deal with. Now, I know in my life, as I, as I was walking through this past, I'm just thinking of people who have influenced me in my life. And, and almost every single person I can think of who have, who's influenced me positively in my life, I could also think of times where I thought they had an incredible amount of patience with me. The way that I treated them in that context, I, if, I were, if the, the shoe was on the other foot, if the roles were reversed, I don't think I could have done what they did. Because I know for myself, I required a lot of patience by a lot of people to have Jesus move me forward in following him. One of those people is Dennis Easter. Many of you know who Dennis Easter is. He's our district supervisor for our, all the four-square churches in our area. He's also been at our church a number of times through transition, and, and he's spoken at our men's uh, gatherings and things. And so Dennis is a great leader. Dennis is the, the first person who called me when I got out of Bible college to consider full-time ministry. And when he called me, it was about six months after graduation. He said, hey, I'd like you and Kim to come to Ventura, and I want you to interview for our youth pastor position. And I was excited. I thought, yeah, let's go do this. And so, so we sat down for the first time. He kind of laid out for, for us kind of what the position looked like. And we had a great dialogue getting to know him a little bit more. Now, obviously, we had known Dennis. Dennis actually married Kim and I. Kim was in his church growing up. And so we had a relationship. But, but I had never worked for Dennis before. So now, remind, remember, I just got out of Bible college. So I had all kinds of theological knowledge and absolutely no experience in ministry. Well, a little bit but not full-time ministry, not, not in this context. So the second interview, we came in, and I remember in my own mind, I was thinking, you know, this looks like a good position, but I have a few issues with Dennis and his theology. Now, Dennis has been in ministry for a lot longer than I have, and he, he understands things that I don't even understand yet. So I remember the conversation. We're sitting in Dennis Easter's living room. You remember Kim sitting next to me, and we're talking to Dennis, and, and I, as he's sharing things, I said, hey, Dennis, I said, there's some things I have some concerns with if I'm going to say yes to this job that I really think that you need to correct. I know, pretty stupid, isn't it? And so I began to name a bunch of the issues that I thought, the way he handled scripture and different things like that. And, and, and Dennis is very interesting because Dennis is a very strong personality, and he can choose to be very impatient if he liked to. But in this situation, as, as I'm sharing, I can see he's just kind of like, he has almost like a little smile underneath, you know, like, all right, I know where this guy's coming from. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. But he was very gracious and very patient. And finally, after I finished my whole kind of theological, you know, dissertation on what, what he needed to correct, he just looked at me and he said, John, he said, let me tell you something. He said, pastors are some of the most insecure people you're ever going to know. Please be careful with us. And I remember when he said that, I'm like, well, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted an argument. I wanted him to come back at it. And he didn't. He said, you just have to understand what he was saying to me in so many words is that you don't know what you don't know. And you're going to learn in ministry, there's going to be things that shape you and change you that will help you to understand things that you need to know before you start mouthing off about things you don't even really understand. And the next five years of my life under Dennis Easter, there was some shaping and some influencing, some very good and some very hard, but all very positive in my life. And I'm thankful for Dennis to this day because he was willing to take on an arrogant punk at a Bible college who knew nothing 
and help to shape me in my life, help to influence me in the right direction towards Jesus. Second thing in verse 5 is influencing towards Jesus also means you and I have to realize our influence toward others reveals our value for Jesus. Because Jesus goes on in verse 5, he talks about welcoming the the child or, or the less one, and he says to welcome them, what? In my name. When you welcome them in my name, you're welcoming me. What does Jesus mean by that? He's saying when you choose to embrace the weaker person, when you choose to embrace the difficult person, you're showing your value for them, which shows your value for me because I love them as much as I love you. And if you and I pick and choose the people that we want to influence in our lives or we want to deal with, then what we're revealing about ourselves is that we're going to pick and choose the way that we're going to allow Jesus to influence us. Because our value for people directly correlates to our value to Jesus. Because Jesus loves people. And so he says, if you're rejecting them, you're rejecting me. And remember, in, we'll get there in probably about a month or so, but, but we've, I've read the passage many times in Matthew 25 when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. And they said, when did we see you doing this? And, when did, and Jesus is saying, whatever you did to the least of these, same phrase, same phrase. He's saying the evidence of your faith is demonstrated in how you treat people who are in poverty or in prison or who are struggling, who are sick. That, that's not what earns you your salvation because we know that comes by grace, but that demonstrates your view of who I am. It's the same thing in this passage. What Jesus is saying is the value you place on other people demonstrates the value you place on me because in the same way, Jesus has done with us what he's asking us to do with other people. He has taken us in and embraced us even though we're sinful, broken, irritating, hard to deal with people. But by his love and his grace, he's accepted us into his family through his sacrifice on the cross, which is incredible. And there's those times when you're going to have to deal with people that are difficult. But you have to remember all the while, if I value them, I'm valuing Jesus even in my own life. There's a ministry that Kim and I and, and actually Courtney and Jordan were a part of for, for a while in Newburgh where, where people in the community would come and, and they, would be, they would come with the basis of a need in their life. And a lot of times it was financial needs that people had. And so there were a number of classes that a number of churches gathered together to partner with in the city to help that be a resource for people. And so one of them was a financial management class. for This was not for people in churches. This was for people in the community. But what we would do is you would, you would be in this class and people from the churches would be matched up as mentors with people in our community. And so you would go through this three-month class with, with, with the people that you were working with and you would become their mentor. And so every week, every Thursday night, we would get together and for 45 minutes, an instructor would talk about budgeting and debt and finances and all these kind of things. And then for 45 minutes, you would sit down with the people you're working with. And I got matched up with this couple. And then you would talk about how they're living that out and how they're working that out in their lives. And I remember when we first started to do this, I sat down and I remember I got matched up with this couple. And the first, the first night we went through our 45 minutes, I remember I get to the end of the first 45 minutes, I'm thinking man, these people have issues. Well, duh, that's why they're there. But I'm thinking, I don't know if I have the patience for this. I mean, they don't even know how to balance their checkbook. They don't even know what a budget is. They're spending money that they don't have. They're even on government assistance. I'm thinking, there's no way they're going to get any of this. And I'm thinking, honestly, I just as a pastor, I have better things to spend my time doing. That's what I'm thinking, okay? That's just my sinful self, okay? And so I started thinking through that, and as the weeks went on, God started to change me and started to realize, no, these people are valuable to me, 
And the reason they're broken is not because they don't know how to manage money. It's because there's bigger issues in their life that are contributing to the fact that they don't know how to handle money. It's the brokenness in their marriage. It's the brokenness in their family where they came from. It's addictive behavior that they've lived out for years. It's all these things combined. And finances, that's just a symptom of what's really going on. And I began to see beyond the issues. And my heart started to change towards this couple. And by the end of the three months, the majority of our 45-minute mentoring time didn't really have to do with finances. It had to do with their life. It had to do with their relationship. It had to do with their baby. It had to do with things that, that were really the core issues in their life. And it took me three months to realize that God loved them, so therefore I should love them too. Because if I chose not to love them, I was not just devaluing them. I was devaluing what Jesus wanted to do in them and in me. How many times in our life are we faced with that kind of a challenge? Where God's called us and he's placed us in, in, a, in a position where we're going to work with people who are struggling with things that maybe we don't struggle with and we can't relate to. And we want to get up beyond it. We don't want to be patient. And God's saying, no, if you are patient with them, you're demonstrating your value for me. Third thing, go on to verse 6. Influencing towards Jesus also means removing stumbling blocks to Jesus. So Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. And we'll talk about the next phase of what happens if you and I were to do that. But think about this, that you and I have to realize that that we can either create or we can identify stumbling blocks for people in their life that keep them from getting to Jesus. It can be habitual sin in their life. It can be bad thinking that they came up with. It can be relationships. It can be a bunch of different things. And we look at that and we realize that is going to keep them from getting to Jesus because it's going to keep them in a cycle where they're stuck and they can't get beyond where they're at. Do we identify those things in people's lives? Do we see those? And do we aggressively pursue how we get those stumbling blocks out of the way of people so they can get to Jesus? That's what he calls us to do. That's what he wants us to do. And sometimes we're afraid and sometimes we're overwhelmed and sometimes we'd rather not get into the mess of somebody else's life and look at the stumbling blocks that are there or maybe even the stumbling blocks that we might create. We don't want to go there. But there's so much at stake. In helping people get beyond the struggles that they're in. There's risk that is involved on our part. Our, our couple of families that I grew up with, and as well some of our, our cousins and on my dad's side, we used to travel to Santa Barbara if we were growing up in the valley, and there was a little place, I can't remember what it was called, like Miramar, it had blue roofs. Anybody remember that? It's like this little like cottages thing. And growing up, we used to go there, and it was always fun because you're by the beach, and, and you know, when you're leaving the valley and going to Santa Barbara, it's like you're going to a whole new world, you know, and, and and one of the funnest things, that one of the funnest memories that we had is that we would go to the railroad tracks and we would save all of our change. And so we'd get pennies and coins, cut quarters and nickels. And then you stick them on the track. Anybody did that? And the train comes by and then you try to find where they all went flying and then they're all flattened. It was really cool. Had a bunch of those. And so we do that every year. And so we did it with our cousins and some friends from our church. And one year we were there and there was a kid who was a little bit older than me. He was probably about three or four years older than me, and we were hanging out, and he was with some of the younger kids. And so we had all our change, and we're putting it out, and we know a train's coming pretty soon, and so we're putting out all our coins on the, on the track. And he's about 10 or 20 feet away from us, and he's, he's yanking on, on, on the, the stakes that hold the railroad ties, you know, underneath the rails. And so he starts pulling it. All of a sudden, he pulls one out. And if you haven't seen one, they're like this big, and they're like that around, and they're heavy. I mean, these are big pieces of metal. And he said, hey, what do you think would happen if we put one of these on the track? And of course, when you're younger and stupid, you're like, sure, sounds good to me. So he didn't just take one. He started working his way back up the track. And he started pulling these off. And I don't know, I never counted, but there were a lot. The track was laced with them probably for like a quarter mile. 
maybe half my, I don't know. And so he comes back after he finishes work. He's so proud of himself. Isn't this going to be cool? We're going to see these flat, you know, stakes or, you know, that's what he's thinking. And so his older brother shows up and he says, hey, what are you guys doing? And so we tell him, and you should have seen the look on his face. He's like, are you kidding me? And so he looks down the track and he sees all these stakes laying on top of the rail. And at that point, we heard a train come in the distance. He starts running towards the train as fast as he can, kicking off every stake he can find off the rails because he knows if not one, two or three or four may derail the train. And I lost sight of him because we were scared to death because now all of this started to, we're like, wait a second, this could be a bad thing maybe. And we lost sight of him. The train goes roaring through and he comes back after the train and he grabbed his brother and took him back to mom and dad. I don't even know what happened to his brother after that. But I remember watching that all unfold and thinking after the fact, if he wouldn't have been there and he wouldn't have pulled those stakes off of there, we were standing 15 feet from that train going 60 or 70 miles an hour. If that thing would have derailed, we would have been done. And I think back and I thought that took a lot of guts for him to run towards a train and kick off all those stakes so the train wouldn't get derailed. The same thing is true when you and I are in a place that God has given us of influence in somebody's life. One of the responsibilities of influence is being willing to risk yourself to remove stumbling blocks from somebody else so that they don't derail their life. That's hard because we're afraid. We're afraid to point out in love somebody else's stumbling block. Or maybe one that we've created that we don't want to acknowledge. We created it. We put it there. And we don't want to acknowledge that because it'll hurt our pride. But how many times do we see the train wreck coming and never do anything to stop it? If we're going to influence people towards Jesus, we have to love them enough to say, you know what, I'm going to stop you right here because what you're doing is going to destroy your life and I love you enough to not be silent about it. Goes to the next thing, the fourth thing. Influencing towards Jesus means understanding how Jesus views bad influence. So Jesus says if you cause them to stumble, then he gives you the result. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Wow. Slightly vivid, horrific way to die. What was Jesus referring to? This is really important because for the Jews, when when Jesus said this, he was referring to a way of death that only the Romans were willing to do. Jews would never do this. They viewed this kind of death as the most horrific way to die. But they knew that Romans were willing to do this to people. And when Jesus talked about a millstone, there was different sizes. He wasn't talking about a much smaller one that maybe a woman would have in her house as as she would take grain and she would, you know, mash it down into powder. We're talking about a millstone that was so big that a donkey would have to pull it to make sure that it would work. He's talking about that kind of millstone that's put around somebody's neck and then thrown into the sea and so that you hit the ground fast and death comes horrifically as you drown without any hope of trying to get to the surface. That's a horrific way to die. Jesus says that causing other people to stumble is worse than dying that kind of death. It would be better for the person to experience that. Why would Jesus say that so strongly? Because you and I have to understand Our influence in people's lives has eternal ramifications. We have a choice. Do I influence, and we'll talk about this in in one of the next points, am I influencing people towards Jesus? And if I'm not, there's only one other option. I'm influencing them towards hell. It's only two directions. There's no middle ground. Am I helping them find Jesus? Am I helping them get to Jesus? Or am I keeping them from, which means they're going the opposite direction? 
That's why Jesus would say this is so strong, because you and I don't understand that the things that we do in our life, the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we live our lives, either is helping people to discover Jesus or we're keeping people from him. Because people are picking up things in our lives that maybe we shouldn't be passing on to them. I won't play the, the clip because there's too much strong language in it. But there, there, there's a, 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 I thought they did a great job in capturing, in the movie 42 about Jackie Robinson. There's a scene when Jackie's coming, coming on the field to play one of his games. And there's a father and son sitting in the stands. If you've seen the movie, you know the scene. And as soon as Jackie gets on the field, the dad just lets loose with all kind of language and racial slurs and towards Jackie Robinson. He's just screaming at him. And meanwhile, his son's sitting next to him. And at first, you can tell his son's just there for a baseball game. He just wants to see guys play baseball. But as he's listening to his dad just go on this tirade against Jackie Robinson, 30 seconds later, the same words and the same hatred and the same anger comes out of the son. And he, you can tell he doesn't even know why he's doing it. It's because my dad did this. This must be the right thing to do. Therefore, I'll do it. That's the kind of thing that you and I have to be aware of in our life. And it isn't just with our kids. It's what we do in our life. People, whether you know it or not, they take our lives and they are a lens by which we, they look through to see what life's supposed to be like. What do they see when they look through the lens? What direction does it lead them in? How are we influencing people? Are we influencing them towards Jesus or are we pushing them away. And then the fifth thing moving on in the passage is influencing people towards Jesus means seeing your life as a doorway for others. Jesus says, Woe to those or woe to the world because of these things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. That means the stumbling blocks have to come from somewhere. They have to come from somebody. They have to come through a doorway in somebody's life in order for them to have it, much like that picture in the movie 42. They come from somewhere. And the question is, on positive and negative side, what is the doorway of our life opening people into? When people walk through your life, where do they end up when they get on the other side? Do they end up closer to Jesus, closer to being who God's called them to be in their life, or do they end up at a further place away from him? I can't answer for that for you. I can answer that for myself. And I'm sure there's many people at certain seasons in my life where if I go back, I thought, wow, where I led them to is not where they should have been. But as I, as I was working through this passage this week, I was just thinking about in my own life, again, influencers in my life and people I've influenced and, and thinking about the different doorways that, that I've been for people in, in my life and wanting to be. One of the things, because Dennis Easter modeled it so well to me, about how he took me in when I was, was arrogant and rude and offensive and shaped me for five years knowing that. And, I, and it's funny, there was this, this, this reoccurring theme that I kept saying to Dennis for five years. I told him I'm never going to be a senior pastor. I'm not called to be a senior pastor. I think almost every senior pastor said that in their life. I'm not called to do that. I remember Dennis saying that. And he would just say, that's nice, you know, and just kind of keep mentoring me. Then when I started pastoring, the first two churches I pastored, I had associate pastors who said the same thing to me. So what do you want to do with your life? I don't know, but I don't want to be a senior pastor. <laughs> it's a funny thing. I said that too. I remind them of that. But I watched these two guys as the, over the years that, that we did life together. We were in ministry. We talked about church together and family, just, just working together. And I remember watching them develop and eventually got to the point where they actually began to see a category for their life that they had not seen yet. That God could use them in a way that they didn't think he could use them. And I remember having a dialogue with our leaders in Foursquare about both these guys at different seasons. And the call was this, hey, 
I know you've worked with them in the past. We're considering them to be the pastors of this church. What do you think? And it was great to be able to say, you know, I've watched their life over this many years, and I've seen what's happened to them. I've seen, I've seen the failures and the challenges, but I've seen the victories and how God's shaping them. And I would say absolutely yes. Both those guys today are, are pastoring in Oregon, one in Dallas and one out in a place called Madras in eastern Oregon. Two great friends, two guys, that at least I played a little part. The doorway that I opened for them got them closer to Jesus. And I thank the Lord for the opportunity to do that, to help them to get where God wants them to be. And if you and I see ourselves that way, that we are a doorway that people are going to pass through, where is the doorway going to lead them? Is it going to lead them closer to Jesus in their lives? And then two more points. Influencing towards Jesus also means addressing our own stumbling blocks. Yes, we have them. So Jesus says, very pointedly, if your hand causes you to sin or if your foot causes you to sin or to stumble, what does he say to do? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. These are, Jesus said this before. These are extreme reactions to sin. Why is Jesus so strong in his reaction to sin? Because if we don't deal with the sin or the stumbling blocks in our life, guess what they will lead to? They will lead to separation from him forever. That's the path of stumbling. That's the path of sin that leads us further and further away. And if we don't deal with them in our lives, then we're going to not only cost ourselves the opportunity to be reconciled back to God and with Him forever, we may actually influence people the opposite direction, and we may cost it for them as well. It's that weight of responsibility that we have. It's the weight of influence that we have. Now, here's the challenge. Why would Jesus be so strong about this? When he said this 2,000 years ago, I'm convinced he understood exactly the audience he was talking to. It wasn't just those who were in front of him. He knew he would be talking to billions of people throughout human history, including us today. And I think one of the reasons is because you and I have a tendency when it comes to sin, we have more of a casual approach, and we would rather manage sin than cut it off. I think that's one of the dangers that we have is that, that and I know if you're like me, we, we all have kind of the categories of sin, of severity. We have certain sins that fall into like, that's really bad, that's something I should never do. And then there's ones over here that are like, yeah, they're kind of bad, but they're kind of a part of my life, and I know I really shouldn't do those, but, but they're not as bad as, man, these are really bad sins over here. Anybody know what I'm talking about? In fact, in every list of sin in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, you and I, whether we know it or not, we have a mental catalog that we catalog the sins in as we read through them on where they are in terms of their severity. Let me just read, for example, Galatians uh, Galatians chapter uh, 5, verses 19 through 20, which Paul writes this. He says, When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Here's the list of sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissent, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. That's a pretty long and powerful list, isn't it? Now, when you read through that list, let's read through it the way we normally read through it. So the first category of really bad sins is what? Look at the first few. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, idolatry, sorcery, hostility. Well, hostility, but let's just go with the first one. End at sorcery. That's really bad stuff, isn't it? Wouldn't we all agree? That goes in the bad category. Don't do that. And people who do that are bad people. And even though some of us may struggle with that, we know it's bad and we react strongly against it. Let's, uh, let's go to the second part. The second half of the list. What does Paul say? Quarreling? Jealousy? Anger? Selfishness? Dissension? 
division, envy, drunkenness. Anybody want to admit you're guilty of any of those? I think all of us are. And I don't ask you to raise your hand on this one, but have we managed any of those? Yeah. That Paul would put something like jealousy in the same category as sexual immorality and sorcery. Because they're all sin. And they all have to be reacted towards the same way. Because Jesus says, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, causes you to stumble, then deal with it severely. Confess it. Get it out there. Be accountable to it. Repent from it. Turn from it. Why? Because it could cost you everything, and it could cost other people as they look through that lens of your life, that doorway of your life into their future. And then the final thing is this. Influencing towards Jesus means also remembering what is at stake. So Jesus says both in verse 8 and verse 9, he uses the term thrown into eternal fire or thrown into the fire of hell. So he kind of ends it with this, this understanding that w- the bottom line is this, is that when you and I embrace Jesus, we're in relationship in this thing called community, we have the ability to influence people towards Jesus or away from him, and ultimately the ultimate outcome is either eternity with him or eternity apart from him. Eternity with him is a place where no more suffering or crying or pain or sorrow or death. That's all gone. That's where we want to be, in the presence of God. Away from him, what? It's a place of torment. It's a place of eternity. It's a place of separation from God forever. Those are the two directions that humanity goes. We end up at one destination or another. So if we understand that, that means that that what we do in our lives has the ability. This is what, it's really good news and it's really bad news. We have the ability, because God's allowed us to, to influence people towards reconciliation with Him, that they'll be able to spend eternity with Him. But we also, by our lifestyle, have the ability to have them go the other direction. I think sometimes, if you and I were to change the way we view ourselves, it might help in helping how we influence other people in our lives. See, whether you and I know it or not, we become like a trainer or a coach to those who would be considered the weaker person. Somebody who maybe hasn't gotten to where we are in in life yet. Maybe we're just a little bit more mature than them. And what a a good coach or a good trainer does is they don't sit passively by and watch destructive behavior happen. They initiate and they help and they reach out because they see in somebody the the capacity for them to get beyond their stumbling blocks, beyond their failure. Anybody watch The Biggest Loser? You see trainers on that show. And what is the sign of a good trainer? They get somebody healthy. They take somebody who is deathly overweight or unhealthy and they teach them how to eat properly and how to train properly and how to, how to lose weight and how to be healthy. Why? So then after the end of the whole process of The Biggest Loser is to have somebody stand on a scale and lose, if not 150 pounds, 200 pounds, less than half the person they used to be, and now they're healthy. That We look back and say, wow, that's a good trainer. Trainers saw that person in them, and because that, they reached out and they pushed them, and they didn't allow them to settle. They they loved them enough to get in their face and to challenge them when they were backing away or when they were going back to old habits. Same thing. If anyone's ever coached before, it's the same thing. A good coach is not somebody who's in the limelight. A good coach is someone who takes a mediocre player and makes them a great player because he helps them to get beyond their stumbling blocks and their issues. That's why if you look at college sports, you don't get it much in professional sports because money kind of clouds everything. But college sports, when you see in college football or college basketball or college baseball, you see a program that's built over years and it's successful year in and year out. What does that say? That says good coach. That says good coach. Why? Because the players change every year, if not every four years. 
but the coach stayed the same. He took different players at different players, places in their, their ability to play and made them better. You and I have to see that if we're going to follow Jesus, he's called us to do that. And that's one of the things you and I have to understand. We cannot live in isolation from each other. We can't. That's part of the package. Our vertical relationship is connected to our horizontal one. How we are with Jesus is how we are with people. And that means I can't go follow Jesus and go live up on a mountain by myself in the woods and not, nobody else can t- connect with my life. I can't do that because then something's wrong with my understanding of who Jesus is. And that's why you've heard it over and over again. That's one of the reasons. Community groups are so important in building relationship beyond Sunday morning. It's being in that relationship where people know you, you know them, and there's this mutual discipleship that happens. They help you as you move, move, or moving forward, and others may be able to help them as well. You and I have to be in relationship for that to happen. One of the things that you'll discover about following Jesus is he, he will mess up the schedule of your life. He will mess up convenience. If you follow him, your life will never be the same. You won't be able to dictate your own schedule and what's easy and what you choose to do because he will continue to push you so that you will follow him. Remember what Jesus said to Peter. He said to Peter, follow me. What happened to Peter after Jesus said those words to him when Peter said yes? Do anybody recall what happens? Was he a fisherman, a fish anymore? No. Was he hanging out on the lake with his buddies anymore? No. He left his business behind to follow Jesus. And I know where we are as a church. Following Jesus is hard. It's difficult. It's not easy. But it's the most rewarding and fulfilling any human being could ever experience in their life. If you and I will give our lives away and say, okay, Jesus, we're going to do it your way. We're going to do it your way. We're going to choose to follow you. And because of that, I'm going to be someone who is discipled while I am discipling somebody else. That's what God has called us to be and God has called us to do as a church. Why don't you close your eyes. Before we we conclude, I want you to think of a couple different people in your life right now. You probably have already thought about them, but I want to draw attention to them. The first one is that there may be somebody in your life, and as you begin to think about them, you would say, you know, I, I look up to that person. When I watch the way they live their life, the watch the way that they make decisions, the way that they treat their wife or their, their husband or their kids or the way that they do their job or whatever it is, you, you look up to that person and, and there's part of you that says, you know, if, if I turned out to be somewhat like them, I think I'd be doing well. That's, that's a person that God has placed in your life as someone who can be an influencer in your life. Somebody who maybe is just a little bit more mature than you, maybe just a little bit more understanding or closer to Jesus in their walk. And because of that, you you look at them and think, I I like to emulate them. And when you see that person, I I, want to encourage you to hang out with that person more. To have more conversations with that person. Even if you you feel it's appropriate, let them know, hey, I I, I look up to you and I want you to know, I know you're not perfect, but, but there's things that you do that I'm learning from you as I watch you that I just want you to know. You're helping me to follow Jesus better. Now, on the other side, there, there's maybe there's one or two people that you know in your life right now that they're not quite where they're supposed to be. Maybe they're a friend or an acquaintance, but when you, you look at them, there's that tension in you. That tension comes from, man, they're difficult to deal with. They're not easy. They take up my time. Sometimes they're irritating. But you know that something deep down inside of you knows that 
what they really need is they need traction. They need stumbling blocks removed. They need someone to invest in them. They need someone to challenge them. They need somebody to disciple them. I'm going to encourage you, as you would initiate relationship or conversation with a person who influences you, I would encourage you on the other side to initiate that with those that maybe are struggling. Because the context of your relationship isn't just to say, I have to put up with this person. It's, I'm going to invest in this person. I'm going to give them traction in their lives. I'm going to be able to address the difficulties and the struggles they're walking through so that I can see them step closer to Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were the ultimate disciple maker. You made the disciples of the twelve and they made disciples of others. And the result is we're here today because you were a good disciple maker. And Lord, I pray that we would be that too, that we would be influencers as we live in community. We would take the influence you've given us seriously in our lives to learn from the influence of others and to influence others who need to follow you more. Lord, give us the courage, give us the selflessness, give us the ability to see the people in our life, Lord, in this whole area of influence. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.